Well, what's the worst that can happen? Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. You just heard Paul speak, and that is the beginning of a long conversation to wrap up the week's big stories on thisiscommonsense.org. We're going to split the uh, podcast up into two this weekend. This is part one, and he's asked the question, what is the worst that could happen? I'm pretty sure the worst is not that we're making a two-parter. Here we go. That's where we should focus. What's the worst possible thing that can happen? And as we begin this insane election year, as Labor Day hits and the election season, the the home stretch is, is here with us, the Washington Post prints top of their outlook section a simulation of what's going to happen in this election campaign. And they get experts, experts to weigh in on what's likely to happen. And when that happens, what else will happen? And well, to make a long story short, President Trump is evil and his people are going to do everything to encourage violence, to cheat, to lie, to steal the election. His people are terrible. The people for Joe Biden are very nice, thoughtful, care about the country, want good things to happen and constantly are looking for how they can compromise and stop any sort of violence. So in this scenario, and this is Rosa Brooks, who's a law professor at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and is part of what's known as the Transition Integrity Project. And to be honest with you, I don't know much about the Transition Integrity Project, But I have to say that after looking at this, well, it was a simulated election event. Uh, The title of my piece was Sincerely Simulated Insanity. And after looking at this, integrity, uh, maybe there's something about transition. There's, There's likely not to be the kind of integrity there should be. Because this simulated election event led to, in all the cases that Joe Biden was elected, uh, well, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. I'm not going to tell people that just yet. First, I want to tell people, as I did in this particular commentary, who played the role. They couldn't get campaign people, I guess, to take time out of their busy schedule to do this cockamamie thing with, with Rosa Brooks. But uh, but people did, and highfalutin people on the Democratic side playing, uh, you know, the Biden campaign were some bigwigs. Uh, Donna Brazil, who ran Al Gore's campaign in 2000. Uh, John Podesta, who was the campaign chairman for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Uh, So they had some, you know, heavyweight folks who were 
simulating what was going to happen representing the Biden team. And they're well prepared to lose a campaign, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they they were able to find ways, you know, for, for Gore, not necessarily his fault or, or uh, Donald Brazil's fault, but uh, boy, butterfly ballots that Florida borrowed in a Democratic county borrowed from uh, Chicago uh, did not work so well. And in fact, in that election, just as a little tangent point, uh, <clears throat> and I'm going to forget it. Oh, uh, Pat Buchanan, Pat Buchanan and, and Buchanan being a pretty straightforward guy said, look, there's no way I got 60,000 votes or whatever it was in Palm Beach County, Florida in 2000. And of course, the difference in that election was what hundreds of votes. So uh, those votes and I have in my basement uh, a a a ballot box. It's not a big ballot box. It's kind of like a, a stand-up ballot box, but it was used in Palm Beach County in that election. And I have the actual ballot and you can lay it out and look at it and see how, you know, you could make that mistake. You could kind of think that hitting this button over here that you thought was for Al Gore is actually hitting the button for Pat Buchanan. So anyway, I, I, I digress, but but these folks, uh, you know, certainly uh, uh, Podesta knows about running an election where Trump refuses to say he's going to abide by the results. And then afterwards, uh, the Clinton forces for you know the entire four years have not been able to kind of bring themselves to say that, hey, it was a, a fair election and we lost and you can't win them all. But interesting, uh, that's impressive, you know, when you think of uh uh, who Rosa Brooks was able to get uh, to be to, to be the Biden campaign. But to me, what was interesting is who she got to be the Trump campaign. Now, he might not be able to get the campaign manager. Like I said, he's busy. He's running a campaign. But who would you get? Uh, other campaign people, uh, people who maybe had run a campaign or who were, you know, a Trump person uh, at some at some level where, you know, they're a booster for Trump, a supporter, a donor, a uh, a uh, you know some consultant who's a little bit removed. They got Michael Steele, who's a former RNC chairman. So hey, he's a Republican, except that he's endorsed Joe Biden for president, and in fact is a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, which the Lincoln Project runs what I consider to be very ineffective, but very very nasty ads against Donald Trump. And so this is literally someone who is actively involved in a daily basis on behalf of the Biden campaign against the Trump campaign, who's simulating and suggesting what the Trump campaign is going to do. It's like getting your worst enemy uh, or getting Trump's worst enemy to play Trump. Except no, 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 because the worst enemy would probably be Bill Crystal, and uh, and I've I've met Bill Crystal. I worked with him some on term limits uh, in the '90s. Um, I like him. Uh, I have a respect for his intelligence. Uh, he's been on good on some issues. He's been terrible on foreign policy. Um, you know, he's certainly a neocon, but. Whatever his other views and whether you like him or don't like him or think he's smart or don't think he's smart, he hates Donald Trump's guts. 
he was maybe one of the biggest first somewhere in that category never trumpers he has i mean he just he's livid he's he's done all kinds of work against trump so on the trump side were people who can't stand donald trump now this is a professor this is someone who's supposed to have a little bit of judgment really really that was your judgment that i can get seasoned Democratic pro-Biden people to play Biden, and I will get Trump's worst enemies who hate his guts to play his campaign. And then I will write a piece in the Washington Post about how the Trump campaign was evil and terrible. I mean, it's beyond laughable. It's this woman. I mean, if I was the president of Georgetown University, I think I'd call her on the phone and say, what is going on? Um, you know, I'm sure that, that that's like a, a felony or something. But but um, I think I wonder what is going on with this professor that they could be that. I don't think it's ignorance. Partisan, partisan political person who doesn't have any sense of what a fair simulation would be, who if they were to do some sort of study you couldn't really believe the results because you know at every turn they'd be pushing their way in a partisan direction. And then what is the Washington Post publishing it and not just publishing it, by publishing it as the big top story in their outlook section. This says of, of kind of these thought pieces, this is the best thought piece that we present to the nation and the world at the Washington Post this week is a completely BS, slanted, twisted, contorted study, simulation of utter insanity after the election because the Trump people are so terrible. Except, except you can't make this stuff up. Here's the rest of the story. So they go through the scenarios, and there's four scenarios. One scenario is a big Biden win. Um, the I just was about to say something about pollsters and what happened in 2016, and nobody is the wiser. So a big Biden win, a narrow Biden win, a narrow Trump win, and a race that is too close to call and all crazy. Too many places where it's razor thin and they're fighting. Now, noticeably absent, of course, is a big Trump win, because, of course, that's not possible. And you'd think you'd almost include it just so you'd have everything, you know, as unlikely as it is. You know, with pollsters being wrong, oftentimes, seems like you would you would have the full spectrum. But whatever. This wasn't exactly a even handed uh, uh, endeavor to begin with. So. You know that the Trump forces in this crazy, simulated, completely insincere, rotten event were vicious and evil and, as was written, trying to cause trouble and violence. You would think that if Biden wins, well, there's going to be all kinds of trouble. And, of course, the Biden people being reasonable and nice and wonderful in every way, shape and form, you would think that if Trump won, 
or it was close, you know, everyone would just hold their breath and see what happened and be very, you know, very magnanimous and admit defeat if that's what it what what it took and everybody would go on and say let's make the best of it but interestingly enough if biden wins big no problem if biden wins narrowly no problem no riots by inauguration day under this simulation where every advantage is given to biden and Trump is like played by complete, you know, people who hate his guts. Under this, a Biden win, small, large, doesn't matter. By inauguration day, there's no riots, there's no problems, there's no unrest. But if Trump wins narrowly, or it's too close to call and there's disputes all over the country in the battleground states, there's unrest and there's not a recognized clear winner with the country all agreeing by inauguration day. What does that say? It says even the simulated election scenarios by folks who are totally on Biden's side admit that the unrest is likely to come if Trump wins not if Biden wins. So why is it always that Trump's fanning the flames of violence and we have to, you know, the militia, it's hard to ever run into anybody who's part of the militia. I don't bump into white supremacists. I just, I haven't seen them. Now, I know they're out there. I'm not saying there's no white supremacists out there, just very few. And the riots that have taken place have not been riots coming from the right. Now, you know, the right doesn't protest as much, you know, for one. And these, um, in recent days, I've had several people attack, I, I mentioned protests in, in quotes, and it was somehow I'd made some terrible attack against protests. Um, and one of the reasons in, one, in a script we'll get to later, uh, it, it really was about, it was about a Nerf gun, uh, but I alluded to the protest. But I put it in quotes because the protests um, are oftentimes not protests. They're riots. And those are two different things. And agitators are going to peaceful protests and causing trouble. And that's not the fault of peaceful protesters. However, in a healthy society where media and other forces hold people accountable, uh, a lot of efforts, demonstration, marches, you have it, are going to be very much policing the people who come to make sure that there's not violence and calling it out and, and, and backing away from it and pointing out and filming who is doing the violence, who is destroying the property, who is setting the fire. Um, so... It, it's, uh, it, it is incumbent, and, and I'm, I don't think it's right to be quick to say, oh, somebody did something violent, so that's the fault of the people behind that. There have been all kinds of black flag things, and it's been on, on all sides, so you never know for certain. But it is incumbent, I think, on people protesting, demonstrating, uh, to have standards and to police your events. 
uh, and do what you can to prevent violence. Violence is bad. Violence is is uh, taking away people's rights, and there's not it's not ever a good thing. And if you're out demonstrating, you're almost always demonstrating for someone to have rights that are not being recognized. It's not helpful to then in the in the course of that not recognize people's rights. So. Now, what do you make of Hillary Clinton's advice to Joe Biden that he not concede on election night and that basically just never concede, that they push it all the way to the end of the, uh, uh, as long as possible? I mean, that's what she did. It was reported on August 25th uh, that I'm seeing right here. I, 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 I almost think, Tim, that we that we give too much credence to these different things that are said by all of these folks, like who cares what Hillary Clinton has to say and who would follow her advice? It didn't necessarily work out so well for her. Well, that is a really good point. Yeah. And, but, but the other part of that is I kind of want to say to the people who suggest that Trump isn't going to leave if he loses, that they'll have to come in and threaten the generals will have to mobilize the troops to get him out of the white house. I don't think so. But you know what? If that's what we got to do, that's what we're going to do. If and if there and if Trump wins and there's violence trying to prevent him from being president, well, doesn't it make sense that we're going to stop that violence? That he is going to become president if he's elected, and that Biden, if he's elected, is going to become president. And even though I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden, if he has the most votes and wins in the Electoral College, I'm going to insist that he be the president. And I think almost everybody in the country, I'm talking in the high 90s, feels the same way. And look, the the world is out of control. Our government's out of control. But there are limits. And I don't think the people are going to put up with uh, riots that prevent an election from being finalized and us moving on. And I don't think that, uh, I don't think Donald Trump is gonna stay in the White House if he loses uh, one second past the time he's supposed to. But if he does, we will grab him by the collar, somebody in our employ as American citizens and say, sir, it's time to get out. So, you know, we don't have to pretend that our society is really at the point where we no longer control who's in the White House or not in the White House. Let's, you know, let's give ourselves just a tiny bit of credit. The problem, though, is what happens when one side or both is behaving very badly. Um, that is, that they do something fraudulent. That happened in 1876. Rutherford B. Hayes was put into office over Tilden, who won the election, because Grant sent in troops to basically rejigger everything in two states. Was it two states? Uh, anyway, it's a, it was an astounding yes. moment in our history, and it was a fraudulent election. And that's what, and the the president was called Rutherford B. Hayes, amusingly, <laughs> uh, <laughs> popularly. Uh, he wasn't a bad president. I didn't realize that. Yeah, uh, but but what happens this time if it's pretty obvious that there have been multiple cases of fraud? in state after state. What happened? What do you do then? I mean, the, right. because it may not even be possible to even know who won. Well, it, it it is scary because people do not pay attention. 
And these elections are controlled by laws written by Democrats and Republicans to gain advantage for each other and advantage for themselves over each, you know, the other. And, um, and you, you know, courts have not been terribly consistent. And it's, it, there's all kinds of opportunity for mischief. Um, and frankly, I don't think we hold it against the parties when they commit all kinds of mischief, partly because they both do it. Um, but it's, it's, uh, I think it is, uh, it's a scary situation. You hear all the time, we constantly hear this refrain that there's no voter fraud. And of course, we constantly hear kind of wild talk about voter fraud or three million votes and fraudulently cast in California and so on. And then no real evidence behind that. But there are all kinds of problems, some of them fraud, some of them not fraud. We've got we've got all kinds of non-citizens who are registered to vote, who may try to become citizens and be prevented from becoming citizens because someone finds out, well, you're registered to vote and that's not lawful. And therefore, we're going to block your citizenship application because we have all these laws throwing people onto voter rolls when they don't want to be there. And I want anyone who wants to vote to be able to vote. I want it to be as easy as we can reasonably make it. But in recent years, there have been efforts to just register everyone to vote whether they want to be registered or not. And frankly, that's not our business. It's not our business as a collective or individually to decide whether your neighbor's registered to vote or not and just registering them. In the same way that if you thought they might want to be registered at Macy's for some special prize or store gift certificate, you know what? Register yourself, but don't register your neighbor without their, without their permission. In the same way, don't register them to vote. And then we have all mail ballots in a lot of places. Well, if you're if you have a situation, I believe Oregon has both of these together. You have all mail ballots and you have universal voter registration. So whether you want to vote or not, you're registered to vote. And whether you wanted to be registered or not, you're getting a ballot in the mail. Now, that seems to me to be a recipe for bad things to happen. And. At the, at the base of it, it's not right. It may be a little thing and, oh, the intentions are wonderful. We want everyone to be able to vote. And just in case you forget, here, we're going to just register everyone. But it leads to a place it's disrespectful for pe to people because there are some people who do not want to be registered to vote. It's a religious thing. It's a moral thing. Uh, it's not your right to control other people's lives, no matter how nice and wonderful you are. So. There's that sort of thing. And in this election, you know, you hear Trump talk about mail ballots. You hear uh, the media talk about mail ballots. They're almost never defining their terms. And I'll, I'll tell you one little aspect of this. Here in Virginia, uh, I, got a, I got a thing in the mail asking if I wanted to vote absentee. So did my daughter, who's 20. Uh, my wife did not get one for whatever reason. She votes as much as the rest of us. We vote pretty much every time, um, even though there's never anything to vote at, but you know, vote on. But uh, we we just go through the motions and in some kind of weird hope that that maybe someday there will be. Um, 
anyway, uh, but she called, she got it. Now, I have no problem with them sending universal, here, you want to apply for a, a absentee ballot applications to people. Again, someone could do something fraudulent with that, but you're asking someone. That's how it works. So you're asking them, and then everyone can vote absentee. If everyone sends back the thing and they process them, great. That's not the same as sending everyone a ballot. And again, when those ballots are out there, people can do different things and and people can control what other people uh, do with their ballot by, you know, saying, hey, uh, Aunt, you know, Matilda, uh, just sign right here. Yes, I got everything. And then they mark the, the things. And and maybe that happens. You know, you, you can't stop every bad thing from happening, but you don't facilitate them. You don't create systems that just have tons of ballots lying all over the place. And I point to, you know, there, there are elections this year in New York, New Jersey, where there were just huge problems. A fifth of the votes being thrown out, coming in too late from the, from the, the mail, uh, not being signed correctly, this or that. Uh, it's been a mess. And it's all been political in terms of it being pointed and no, we need to do this. And of course the solution is always some angle that helps your party over the other party. The media reports it politically as if the mail ballots are just wonderful. There's no problem, even though there is a problem. And it's, it, it's not that boy, everything the Republicans are saying is true. Everything the Democrats say is not true or everything the Democrats say is true. Everything the Republicans say is not true. But it's so clear that we have a system that is not fair. It's not, it's not designed by us. It's not our system. It is desi designed in the back rooms of the Capitol. It's the kind of thing that most of us, we care about the environment. We care about health care. We care about the economy. We care about war and peace. We're not thinking about what's the rules for voter registration and what does that form look like? I, I know you guys want to debate, you know, the moral issues of the day, but I really focused on the form that the secretary of state just came up with for an absentee ballot. It's it's blind. We're all blind to it. And so it hasn't been well taken care of. We got lots of problems. I, I tend to think. My experience with secretaries of state, there are some that I think have been partisan and, and bad actors, but almost all. I can think of a couple that I would I think were bad actors, but all the rest that I've had any dealing with, even when I agree with their politics, I didn't agree, whatever, they've tended to follow the rules, they've tended to be fair, they've you know, they, they will tell you things. They've been open. Um, our system is not, you know, everybody in government isn't a vicious partisan or a, you know, some sort of lazy, no good. You know, I mean, we, we've got real people who work and do these jobs and we can we can run a, a pretty efficient government if there's any leadership. And and I don't mean just leadership in the White House and on TV. I mean leadership in terms of us electing people who actually want to represent us and do what we want. And, 
not looking at all of these laws that govern elections as their insider doings to keep them in this job for term after term after term. So it's, uh, um, it, it, I, I look at all of this and I think the, the reporting to people uh, on, the, on the mail ballots and on this election is a mess. Uh, it's largely uh, without any real information so that it becomes disinformation. I mean, if, if you're out there suggesting that, you know, millions of people are voting fraudulently in California, I think you're, you're just wrong and you have, no one's come up with the evidence. Well, that's not helpful. If you're out there saying there's no voter fraud and this is all, it's all been disproved, well, you're lying. And so that's not helpful. And, and again, you know, the media has a tendency to pick one of the two parties, both of whom are lying, and go with it. And that's not what we want to do. And, and will cooler heads prevail if we have a very, very close election? I'm not so sure. Um, but I'll tell you, out of that, I think there's a tremendous, uh, I think it could, uh, if, if I were to predict right now the election, I would predict that Biden beats Trump, that it's close. But Trump has such a tough map anyway. Uh, and so uh, I think it's very tough for, for Trump. At the same time, I think the biggest push behind Trump is the utter insanity of the Democratic Party. And the media, which, Tim, we have regularly talked about, is to the left of the Democratic Party, to the left of the left of the Democratic Party um, in, in large part. And and so they pushed, uh, you know, there was no reporting, uh, decent reporting about the, the riots, protests becoming riots. Um, you know, all of a sudden after, you know, Trump pulls federal people out of Portland and then Portland gets worse. Then um, there's no reporting about that. Then all of a sudden, when it looks like a lot of Democrats are looking at polls and realizing, hey, uh, we've, we haven't really been condemning this violence that people are getting a little tired of. You know, when you burn their business down, somehow they notice and they're not happy. Um, and, and so all of a sudden, these are Trump riots. Um, and, and part of it has been that somehow it's Trump. Trump has been on the side of police, and I think blindly on the side of police sometimes, which is anytime you're blindly doing something, it's not a good thing to do until you get your eyesight back. And, but that's not where the country has been. And frankly, from a governing standpoint, as opposed to a spouting out stuff and tweeting standpoint, Trump has done some reforms, has been better on some of the criminal justice issues than a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats. So it's, it's interesting that all of a sudden it's like his fault what happened in Kenosha or what happened in, in uh, Louisville, uh, um, with Breonna Taylor and, and so on. These, these are things that they're, it's not just they're happening in democratic cities, but especially when you look at Portland, it's happening in a democratic city. The mayor, this, if anybody who knows anything about this just has to wonder how could someone who's as big a loser as, and I'm glad I don't know his name as Wheeler, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's Ted Wheeler, isn't it? Ted Wheeler. Wow. He he goes to a protest to dump on Trump and 
Of course, his own security detail gets in fisticuffs with the protesters who are obviously not nonviolent if they're getting in fisticuffs with them. They boo them. They're, you know, it, the whole thing. And he, he's it's like he's trying to be on their side. It's just pathetic and pitiful and the height of cowardice. And then, of course, when it all transpires that finally there's an agreement, hey, don't let them burn down our building. We'll get out of here. And then it gets worse. And instead of there being any recognition of that, it it kind of they, they shift gears and all of a sudden these are the, the country's coming apart. See, Trump can't govern. You know, if that's the thing that kills me is, is that really the best they had? Is that, you know, Democrats won in 2018 largely because Republicans didn't just punt on health care. They they kicked the ball backwards and fell over themselves and fumbled it into the end zone and helped the Democrats recover it for a touchdown. I mean, it was you couldn't be worse on health care than the Republicans. You couldn't have a worse track record on any issues than the Republicans have on health care. And in 2008, when Democrats brought the issue of health care, and, and frankly, as, as you know, Tim, I'm not with them. Uh, on, on, I'm not with the Democrats on the issue, but I recognize that a lot of people are squeezed and they're looking for help and they want the government to help them. So they'll let the government take over more and more of our medical care, which I think long term is a big, big, big mistake. But um, but I understand where people are on it. And what's amazing to me is that instead of Democrats saying we will show that we can govern and meet people's needs. You know, the way they like to pretend they can sometimes. Um, you know, government's really helpful, you know, and reasonable and thoughtful and efficient. Um, it's just talk, but, but sometimes they talk that way. But instead of saying, hey, we won in 2018, we'll be the governing party. We're not all the, you know, kind of a no drama Obama versus the, the uh, bull in the China shop, uh, Donald Trump. And, and yet it, it seems like they, they abandon kind of expanding on, on Obamacare, even though that's kind of what Biden, I think, would say his position is. But everyone who's watched the, the primary process and the Democrats knows that that's not really where it is anymore. And that Democrats at the first opportunity are going to go for Medicare for all or much more of a nationalized program that the whole race issue. I mean, we're, you know, it, it's like every American is going to be forced to read critical race theory. And, and, you know, we're all going to have to go to the stadium and announce how we have certain privileges. Some people like you and I, Tim, we're male, we're white. Uh, you know, I'm going to have, I'm, I'm, terribly good looking. I think that's always been a, a you know, a, 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 you know, a cross I've had to bear people just, you know, anyway, I'm kidding, obviously. <laughs> but <laughs> it's a shame it's so obvious. Well, yeah, well, it's only known on the YouTube viewers. The, the, the <laughs> podcast <laughs> listeners have no clue. Uh, they are right now. They're thinking that he's really good looking. Um, <laughs> handsome fellow. Uh, anyway, you know, what is this? It's 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 uh, it's almost as if they recognize, hey, we won with a more reasonable 
approach. But that's not where they are. They're way on the, we need to be more radical. We need to embrace socialism. We need to say everybody gets a free education, even if that means that the poorer folks in America, poorer young people who are struggling more, will have to pay taxes to subsidize wealthier young people. It's there's and there's all kinds of things like this that it's it, I mean, it's just a mess. They're looking at how do we promise something new, you know, just constantly. And it to me. It 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 allows Donald Trump, I think, to run as anti the media, which the media is not very popular. It's like almost like running against Congress. And it allows him to run against the Democrats as scary because they're scary. I just I, I'm scared. Um, and as as I've joked several times in these podcasts, I um, I have a friend, big Trump supporter, uh, in 2016. I told him one time, well, he scares me a little bit. And he used to always call me, "Are oh, you still scared?" And I have to say, I'm less scared today than I was when Trump won in 2016. Uh, and that's because he has not governed as crazily, as erratically, as big governmently as I thought he would. For instance, um, uh, you know, Supreme Court justices, almost every Republican, uh, including Reagan, Bush, both Bushes, They've picked Supreme Court judges, I don't know, it's like a 50-50 thing. Half of them are going to be the Democrats, Supreme Court justice. I mean, Souter that that H.W. Bush picked, you know, day one was like one of the most liberal, was always voting with the Democrats. It's like, how did that happen? Um, And Trump has picked two justices, uh, as I've written many, many times at thisiscommonsense.org, Go and and uh, search for Gorsuch, and you'll say see lots of praise. Uh, I think it's the number one argument to vote for Donald Trump for re-election is uh, Justice Gorsuch. Uh, but the truth is, Kavanaugh is is in the better half, um, and and uh, is bad on national security, state stuff, and and criminal justice stuff. He's not great on, although I think he was he was good on a recent thing. I was a little surprised, pleasantly surprised. But anyway, Trump hasn't picked any, of, uh, you know, really terrible justices as Reagan, uh, you know, Kennedy wasn't so good, uh, uh, Bush, both Bushes. They haven't been the greatest on that. I think also um, something that's become more and more important to me is looking at the rise of totalitarian China, not communist, even though they call themselves communist. They're kind of a radical state capitalism uh, without any real political freedom. It's, hey, let's try capitalism with zero political freedom and ultimately controlled by the government. So it's not really quite capitalism either. Um, But it's ugly. And I've become very concerned that the United States policy was basically, look, we will let China rip us off because we're all making money. And at the end of the day, you know, we'll be rich and we'll be dead and it'll be somebody else's problem. Um, 
it's the people of Hong Kong's problem. I don't know how we save them. Uh, I mean, it's part of China now, and they couldn't wait to totalitarianize it until 2047, so they had to do it now. And they threatened Taiwan, and of course now they, they uh, you just, I, I, I have a little um, Google alert, and my goodness, I mean, they're, they're, they're doing things in Bhutan. Most people don't know where Bhutan is, but it borders China and the Himalayas. And, uh, you know, they're, they're fighting with India. And there are Indian soldiers who are dead because they're clashing on the border there. Uh, China's a threat. And I, I have a friend who hates Donald Trump with a pretty severe passion, and, uh, but who is very concerned about China and what they did in Tibet and what they've done other places with the Uyghurs and so on as am I. And as we debate back and forth, he just can't stand the idea that Donald Trump is much better on these issues. And it and again and again occurs to me that Donald Trump is much, much better on these issues. And, you know, some detractors are going to say, look, it's just because it's a good election year issue for him. Well, look, I can't know what is in Donald Trump's heart or Joe Biden's heart, I don't know. And you don't, most of the people listening don't know him either. We can only look at what they do. And this is the first president since Tiananmen Square uh, who has taken a serious stance toward a just metastasizing uh, totalitarian cancer. I mean, the, the level of surveillance state the fact that they have people, a million to two million Uyghurs and others in concentration camps, these are camps designed to eradicate their religion and their customs and their language. And it's not like other people haven't done this throughout the world. It's something that was done to, you know, uh, Aborigines in, in Australia, it was done to Indian uh, Native Americans in the United States of America. It was done when the law said that you couldn't teach uh, black folks to read. Uh, these sorts of things have been done throughout history, and they are horrific. But they are being done right now with an intensity and a machinery in a state. I mean, one of the things that was so horrifying about Nazi Germany was it was totalitarianism taking over what was the uh, most advanced uh, intellectually, arguably, the most advanced society. It was an advanced state, not a, it wasn't Pol Pot in Cambodia trying to starve everybody and beat them to death with sticks. It was a serious threat because they had the machinery of the free world, of, of what capitalism and freedom had produced and China has that and it's it's the same thing I mean I look at at Hong Kong and in, in some ways I kind of think of uh, you know it's the Rhineland uh, it's really kind of German territory they're not supposed to occupy it with soldiers uh, same sort of thing as Hong Kong there's an agreement uh, and and they're not really allowed to totalitarianize China or China isn't allowed to totalitarianize Hong Kong until 2047, and yet they can't wait. So they totalitarianize them now. They take over now. 
And it's the same sort of thing. They broke an agreement. They did it because they're strong and because they're not going to live up to those agreements if they don't have to. And the next step, well, the next step in 1938 was uh, Chamberlain flying to uh, Munich um, to hand over the Sudetenland. Peace in our time. And I kind of look at Taiwan. And the fact that China continually claims that Taiwan is their territory, even though the People's Republic of China has never contained Taiwan, the island of Taiwan. Um, and, and so, you know, I kind of think, well, you know, where do you draw the line? Where do you hold China back from being an aggressor? And I think, well, you hold them back right now. You hold them back at, at, at the Taiwan Strait. That's a, that's. 90 to 100 miles uh, of water that's tough to cross. So it's, um, and I don't know, you know, we, we talk later in the week, we talk about uh, China and uh, in Disney's Mickey Mouse uh, boycott. Um, but, um, so maybe I've kind of jumped ahead, but it, it, this is our, our world right now that the United States is I think in a position of tremendous internal uh, friction. And most of that friction is being applied not to a movement in the country at the citizen level, but a political class that is mad that it didn't win the last election and damn well is going to win this election. And I think that includes much of the media, includes much of the, you know, it's why it's easy to find all kinds of foreign policy hands and others who are former Republicans who will bash Trump, because that's not, you know, that's not their part of, uh, of Republicanism. And, and look, Trump's wrong on some things that aren't, aren't my part of Republicanism. I don't, I don't call myself a Republican. I call myself a libertarian, but it's, it's, uh, you know, there's a there's a a deep state element to it, but there's also a a there's a huge um, uh, group around the state, from think tanks to uh, groups that do study study different things to you know that are getting federal money. There's a whole apparatus there. And that apparatus is mobilized in a way it hasn't been. And the media is there. And so it becomes an election in which huge things could happen. And one of the things that I think, you know, could happen is that we go back to a policy of, hey, let's just make money in China. What do we let them do what they want to do? And under that kind of policy, well, we're not going to go to war over them taking Taiwan. Hey, they've always claimed it, just like they've always claimed Tibet. And, they, and they've always claimed that they ought to be able to change the religion of the Uyghurs. So, I mean, hey, they've always said they have the right to stomp on people. Uh, and so why fight them? Come on. And, of course, then you kind of think, well, well, what happens to South Korea and Japan and what happens to the Philippines and Vietnam and the, and the South China Sea? Well, it becomes Chinese. And they kind of beg and plead for whatever they can get. And what happens to Australia? And it just creates a, um, you know, I, I think we were asleep at a tremendous threat 
And I'm, I'm, you know, not usually a, a big cold warrior. Uh, I'm not looking for military engagement around the world. I've always wanted us to pull back and be a republic and not an empire. I still want that. But I don't think that you can do that without strategically creating an environment where free societies are going to be able to remain free. And, and uh, uh, Chai uh, Ingwen, the president of uh, Taiwan this week, uh, may have been last week, actually, but uh, talked to a number of diplomats who were who were visiting Taiwan, uh, which doesn't seem to be suffering from the virus. So they can have people visit. Uh, but anyway, uh, so she had these people there and she started talking about a worldwide coalition of free countries uh, to to be against folks who are trying to to come aggress against them. And, uh, and the boy Taiwan knows what, what that's about. And I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think it makes a, a lot of sense as a way for America to build a coalition that matters. I mean, uh, a lot of times we think about like the coalition in the, in the Gulf War. I think it was 32 countries or something. And, you know, half of them were sending 16 people in a bugle corps or something. That, that's not real. I mean, you know, thanks. But. You know, that's not going to win win wars. And it's and the truth is, the point isn't to win wars. The point is to be strong enough to avoid wars. If if China thinks that the United States and other countries are not going to put up with them militarily invading Taiwan and that they will come to their defense or very likely will and will go apoplectic in terms of decoupling economically and sanctioning and so on and so on, well, then they're not going to go to war. They're not dumb. Xi Jinping is, is anything but not dumb. And, and the CCP, they're not a bunch of idiots, unfortunately, um, because they're not, not nice people. They're not nice folks, as Joe Biden said. They're not bad folks, folks. <laughs> yeah, they are. Uh, but anyway, that's... Uh, that makes this election, which just seems so dysfunctional with a pandemic on top of it, just so just distressing and annoying uh, and scary and unsettling in the United States. Well, it also has a huge impact, I think, on the, on the rest of the world. Um, so uh, with, the, with that hour, we've gone through one script. Which is why I think we should cut it in two. Yep, this is the end of part one of This Week in Common Sense starring Paul Jacob for the second week of September 2020. This podcast can, of course, be found at thisiscommonsense.org, but on SoundCloud and accessed via podcatchers such as Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Apple, Google, and others. So there you are. Stay tuned. Part two will be coming in a day or two. <laughs>